Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Today, I'm pleased to be speaking with Annie Lou Chadwick, a senior attorney with Kids in Need of Defense, or KIND. In addition to education and advocacy, KIND provides attorneys at no cost to represent minors in their immigration cases. Welcome, Annie Lou, and thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Katarina. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak on these issues. Well, there are two topics I'd like to try to address, both dealing with child immigrants. The first is unaccompanied minors in the U.S. or at a border, and the second is family separation. So let's start with children at the border. Can you define for us who is considered an unaccompanied minor? That's a great question. Thank you so much. An unaccompanied minor is a child under the age of 18 years old without lawful immigration status who does not have a parent or legal guardian in the United States available to provide care and physical custody. I've read a little bit about this, but so even if they come with other family, if it's not a parent or if they don't have legal paperwork, they're still considered unaccompanied, even if they come with company? That's correct. Um, If the child is traveling with other relatives, they will more than likely be separated from that relative if they are not a parent or legal guardian, and then be placed within the immigration system and designated an unaccompanied minor. Most important is at the point of contact with Customs and Border Protection, they are either by themselves, as we have seen in the media, or were accompanied by someone not their parent or legal guardian under the color of law. Okay. And I could see how that would could prevent potential trafficking, but could also make it really difficult for children and their families. That's, that's an interesting definition. It makes it incredibly challenging. Oftentimes, children um, have been living with extended family members for the majority of their lives, and that separation is still impactful and traumatic as they're being taken away from their caregiver, the person that they recognize to provide them with safety and their necessities, and being placed in a situation where they do not know anybody else and are held with other minors. So can you give us an overview of what are the potential outcomes for an unaccompanied minor who arrives at the border? Do they have any special protection or like what could possibly happen to them when they get there? Absolutely. With the designation of unaccompanied minor, it it grants certain protections as recognized by the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act of 2008. Now, the TVPRA codified high-end legal procedures designated to uphold fairness for unaccompanied children in the U.S. immigration system and to prevent their return to danger. Now, complementary laws and standards, including what we know as the Flores Settlement Agreement, gave further voice to the United States' responsibility to treat children humanely, recognizing their especially vul- their special vulnerabilities and um, the importance of upholding due process um, in the United States. And so what would be some of those special considerations? How are they treated differently from adults? 
Certainly. So once they receive the designation of unaccompanied minor, they're placed in the care of the Office of Refugee and Resettlement. And the, the Office of Refugee Resettlement operates shelters um, around the country, and they are more child-friendly. They're not adult detention. They uh, have child-trained specialists who are able to co uh, provide complex case management to ensure that the child is perhaps reunified with a potential sponsor, perhaps um, relatives or friends who are living in the United States, someone who can take charge of the child and ensure that they, um, that they follow through with their immigration proceedings once they are released from um, ORR custody. Um, the specific protections of the TVPRA are, are critical in ensuring that children do not remain in facilities that are wholly inappropriate for their care, facilities that we've seen in the media, such as those operated by Customs and Border Protection. It ensures that they are receiving the cares and the social emotional support necessary to ensure um, their best interest. Now, the TVPRA does not grant automatic right to legal representation, so minors are still required to undergo deportation proceedings on their own. So minors do not have an automatic right to to counsel. As we know here in the United States, in criminal or in family court proceedings, children oftentimes have someone designated who can add a voice and agency to their interests um, and what they want to happen in their case. Now, that's not a given in, uh, in immigration proceedings. So as a kind, we work together with unaccompanied minors to ensure that no child has to present themselves in immigration court by themselves and navigate various complex systems that are constantly evolving. As to potential outcomes, once in placed in removal proceedings, unaccompanied minors have to present their legal cases, some form of relief, whether that is asylum, which is a protection granted in the United States if they had suffered harm or threats in their home country that has risen to the level of a perse persecution. They could also be eligible for what is known as special immigrant juvenile status or uh, other avenues of relief. And that is why it's critical for unaccompanied minors to speak with attorneys so that they're able to assess and know what options are available and what relief they could potentially qualify for. So we know that children are detained in some point. So they start off in that CBP custody, which is sort of what we see on the news, and then hopefully within a reasonable amount of time transferred to one of these, into the Office of Refugee Resettlement custody, which is, which should be more kid-friendly. Are there any age considerations? Like what age kids tend to be in these facilities? What age kids are, are coming? That's an excellent question. Now, um, what should be occurring and present to the Flores Settlement Agreement is minors are to be held in CBP custody for up to 72 hours and then be transferred into the care of um, Health and Human Services, which runs ORR facilities. Now, what we're seeing right now is that that's been delayed because there's been such an increase in numbers of children who have recently entered the United States. This is due to being trapped in a backlog of um, policies enacted under Trump's administration and also to the ebbs and flows that we've historically seen in migration. Now, what should 
happen, as you mentioned, is the child goes into CBP custody, should be transferred into the care of HHS within 72 hours. And from then, reunification options are explored. Now, a child can enter, um, is designated an unaccompanied minor if they are under the age of 18, as, as I mentioned before. So at any point, if they're come into contact with CBP, they will then go into OR custody. But what is a concern is once the child turns 18, then there's the potential for that child to be transferred immediately into ICE custody, which um, holds adults in detention. And that's, that's a very, very different environment than the one that unaccompanied minors are being placed in. How many of these ORR centers exist, do we know? There's many ORR shelters across the country, but it's also important to distinguish the type of ORR facilities that we're seeing currently. Right now, in response to what we're seeing at the border with a large increase of children finally being able to access protection after being trapped in violent conditions due to and the backlog under the previous administration's policies, we are now having, um, again, what we're seeing the opening of emergency facilities, which has been done in prior administrations. But this time, the, this Biden administration is moving forward with putting guardrails in place to ensure that children are appropriately cared for and released quickly from these facilities. Now, the idea and the need for emergency influx facilities is to quickly um, be able to support and provide a safety need for children who are in CBP custody. And the creation of these emergency facilities will address that, that backup that I mentioned earlier, but that children are now spending well over those 72 hours in CBP custody, which again is wholly inappropriate. It's what we're seeing in the media. CBP agents are trained in operating ATVs, in night vision goggles, and in weapons. They are not trained to respond to the social emotional needs of toddlers of children escaping persecution in their home countries in unsafety as they were impacted by the microprotection protocols or their such policies. Now, as an organization that has long advocated for ORR reform and certainly does not think the use of influx facility in the long term is appropriate, I can say we would much rather have a child in an influx facility run by staff with child welfare expertise than either of those places that will not provide them with the necessary care. Now, Influx Facility provides intense case management to ensure a seamless safety net for children and to facilitate the speedy reunification of children with loving family members who can provide them with care while their deportation proceedings are pending. Now, if they are unable to reunite, the aim would then be to um, a transfer or place them in, in a shelter that has more capabilities for providing for their care, for their education, for their mental health needs, um, again, with their social emotional needs being the primary objective. So it sounds like it's kind of a, a tiered program. You start with CBP, you can move into these OR facilities or an emergency influx facility, and then hopefully be reunited with family. But if not, then move into a more long-term facility to go through additional case management and figure out what what could be done. That's right. That's right. Because the influx facilities um, are, well, due to COVID, HHS um, cannot run licensed facilities at full capacity. And 
because they are not li licensed, we're advocating for strict guardrails on the use of them, because we've seen the Trump administration abuse the use of influx facilities. So in and we're seeing an emergent need, and as it's trying to be addressed, you're absolutely correct that it creates somewhat of a tiered system, but one that is able to quickly ensure reunification and ensure processes that cater to the child's best interest. So you mentioned once children are settled, they still undergo a deportation proceedings where either they ask for asylum, they can try to be reunited with family, or they can potentially get this special immigrant juvenile status. Would you describe for us what is that and who qualifies for that? Thank you. Such an important question. Special immigrant juvenile status is a special protection given to minors who have certain characteristics. And those characteristics being that they are under the age of 21, they are not married, they are dependent on a juvenile court, their unification with their parent one or both parents would not be in their best interest due to abuse, abandonment, neglect, or similar basis, and it would not be in their best interest to return to their home country. Now, that's the legal definition of special immigrant juvenile status, and it's a process that involves various stages um, with various agencies, and it's to ensure that the child's best interest is continuously advocated for. These are children who, again, had been previously abused, abandoned, or neglected by one or both parents, and they're therefore increasingly vulnerable. And the clients that we serve here at KIND fall into these categories of qualifying for SIJS or for asylum due to harm suffered in their home country. So as an organization, we work not only to address the trauma that may have impacted them in their home country, but also trauma suffered during the travel to the U.S. and perhaps while in government custody or in the cases of forcibly separated children, any trauma suffered due to that forcible separation. Is that status a permanent status? Like, is it a green card or is it a temporary protection that can eventually expire? It's a multi-step process, the first of which is uh, submitting a petition and once the petition is approved then it'd be awaiting for eligibility to, uh, to apply for the green card so it's not a status that expires but it is a multi-step process and one that can take uh, many years that's why it's so critical for minors to be able to have access to counsel who can guide them through these processes as when a kind comes into contact with kind it's not just a commitment to advocate on their behalf or the next few months or the next few years, but it's truly a commitment as immigration processes are known to take many, many years to to finally go through all the way and no longer have to face deportation proceedings. Is this type of protection or relief, are they limited or are any number of available to whoever qualifies? I know so many types of relief can be limited in just number or by country are there any of those types of limitations on this? That is an excellent question. Thank you so much for raising it. As I mentioned, it is a multi-step process, the first of which is submitting a petition for special immigrant juvenile status. Once that petition is approved, the child then um, has to wait for their priority date to become current. Their priority date is the date which they submitted their petition to United States Citizenship and Immigration <coughs> Services. Now, as you mentioned, there is 
a bit of a wait. And specifically for children who have SIJS, there is a significant backlog for their priority date to become current, meaning they would become eligible to finally obtain their green card. Now, I've seen wait times ranging from four to five, six years, meaning that due to past policies, children have to be in deportation proceedings during that time. If Even if they have a petition for special immigrant juvenile status pending or even approved, they have to provide repeated updates to the immigration court. On, the st on their status. That means keeping into contact with their attorneys. That means maintaining the court updated as to where they are. Individuals who are in removal proceedings, contrary to rhetoric, individuals comply and show up to deportation proceedings at a significantly high rate. I believe it's well over 95%. And I think in the case of children, that is especially critical. The backlog is so significant that often is the case that as advocates, we, we see our clients grow and go through multiple milestones um, in their childhood. And through that time, in reaching those milestones, they still have to comply and attend with deportation proceedings or be at risk of being deported to their home countries. And just numerical wise, is there like a cap on how many of the, the special immigrant juvenile status green cards are available or no? Yes, there is a cap. Oh, that's why there's a wait time. Yes, there's a monthly cap and that is determined by the visa bulletin. Now, uh, children who are awaiting priority dates actually fall under employment-based categories, which is fairly odd. And so due to that, there is a cap on how many children are able to adjust their status or receive their green cards each month. And that creates a backlog. So we watch the bulletin every month to see if it'll advance and allow our clients to finally apply for, for that green card. But in the meantime, um, they have to wait. Okay, so let's move on to family separation. We've heard so much in the media now, and then especially in 2018, about family separation at the border. Can you describe for us what exactly is included when we say family separation and how does it happen? Who who does the separating? Can you kind of just give us a sense of when we hear about family separation, what's actually happening and where? Absolutely. Family separation is a forcible separation of a child from their parent or legal guardian. Now, family separation started under previous administrations, but it took on a whole new meaning in the summer of 2008 with the implementation of the zero tolerance policy. Previous to the implementation and announcement of the zero tolerance policy, forcible separations were occurring on a basis similar to that of prosecutorial discretion, that it was a decision made on limited basis. And with the implementation of zero tolerance policy, it became a measure now used as a deterrent and applied to everyone who came into contact with Customs and Border Protection. That's really the biggest change and what caused the onslaught of separations that we witnessed in 2018. Presently, we know that over 5,400 children were separated from their parents under the previous administration. This includes 2,814 children separated pursuant to the zero tolerance policy, 
over 1,500 children separated between July 2017 and June 2018, which are now considered to be part of an expanded class. And then there's also over 1,000 children who were separated after a court in the Ninth Circuit found family separations to be unconstitutional and issued an injunction to prevent future family separations from occurring unless there were certain exceptions. So when does family separation happen? Under the previous administration, we saw that family separation was happening indiscriminately under the zero tolerance policy. And after the announcement of the formal end by the previous administration and the issuance of an injunction by a court in the Ninth Circuit, we continue to see separations based on certain exceptions. And those exceptions were if the parent had any criminal history, prior entries into the United States, there was any doubts about the parent relationship to the child. There was concerns about that the parent presented a risk of harm or danger to the child or gang allegations. Okay, so currently, now that the zero tolerance policy no longer exists, why would a child and a parent or legal guardian be separated? And does it happen frequently? And who who does it? Where does it happen? Does it happen at the border by CBP or ICE, or does that happen later on by a judge? Can you just give us some idea of now that it's not meant to be a deterrent, at least in law, why are those separations still happening? Thank you. That's an excellent question. A forcible separation happens at the border once a Customs and Border Protection official makes that determination to separate the child from their parent. That determination is not made by a child welfare specialist. From there, the separated child is placed in ORR custody and is designated an unaccompanied minor, even though they presented themselves at a point of entry or they came into contact with CBP with their parent. Now, their parent is then placed in immigration custody or is referred to the U.S. Marshals for a criminal prosecution, depending on the specific case, or they're referred to medical treatment if they were ill when they came into contact with CBP. Now, Despite the formal end of the zero tolerance policy, we have continued to see forcible separations because there is nothing currently in place to deter that from happening. Even though the previous administration rescinded the executive order implementing the zero tolerance policy, and even though there was a court in the Ninth Circuit that determined family separations to be unconstitutional, certain exceptions were carved out that has allowed family separations to continue. And they continue to this day. Now, there are many types of family separations. What I refer to the different iterations of family separations. What I'm talking about now is the act of a CBP agent separating a child from a parent. But other family separations are happening as a result of the backlog created. Family separations, different iterations, were created when families were placed into MPP and had to make the heartbreaking, impossible decision of having their child remain with them in very violent areas where many migrants were subjected to assaults, various forms of violence, extortion, kidnappings, or have them... um, reunite with family in the United States. Now that caused a form of family separation. We're also seeing family separation occur with the uh, continuation of Title 42 expulsions. Now, while we're incredibly thankful to the White House um, for deciding to do the right thing and exempt unaccompanied minors from Title 42, there's still 
removing, expulsing families under Title 42, and that includes children. And so we're seeing family separations manifest in different forms. But when you hear the term family separation, that's the specific act of a government official taking a child away from their parent. Um, And as I mentioned before, there's nothing in place to currently stop that from happening, but we are encouraged because there have been good developments. The administration has implemented many of the changes urged by KIND, our partner organizations, and child welfare experts, including the implementation of experts who would be able to assist CBP officials in making these decisions. As we know, when a child is separated from their parent, it is nearly impossible to undo. And the severance of that connection does quantify as torture as recognized by Physicians for Human Rights and other international organizations. So it's critical that those decisions to separate a child from a parent are being made in the child's best interest. When we think about reunification efforts, how does that work? Who is doing that work? Is that through the Office of Refugee Resettlement as well? And you had mentioned that it's possible that when a child is separated from their families, the child can go into custody and the parents could potentially be in custody, could end up in a medical unit if necessary, or I assume potentially deported. So what are some of the challenges and how does it, what is that process of trying to reunify families like? That's an excellent question. So I will preface this by distinguishing reunification efforts for children designated unaccompanied minors who don't who weren't forcibly separated from a parent upon entry into the United States, um, and then discuss reunification efforts and how they work with uh, children who have been forcibly separated. So with unaccompanied minors, um, they do enter ORR custody, and ORR undertakes efforts to locate possible sponsors, that's family members, relatives, options, uh, individuals who may be able to provide care and assistance to the child while their deportation proceedings are pending. After passing through background checks and other measures, a child can be released from ORR custody and be reunited with that individual. Now, as we see what's happening at the border, we're continuously advocating for the expedited reunification of children if they have family members available here in the United States so that they do not have to remain in the care of the government. Now, the process for unification for a forcibly separated child can be similar, but also a bit different. They can, of course, go through the traditional process of reunifying with an ORR sponsor, and that is being released to the care and custody of someone here in the United States, or they can seek to reunify with their parent in the United States, or if their parent has been swiftly deported in their home country. Now, you asked who's in charge of undertaking those efforts to reunify. And a lot of that advocacy falls on the legal service providers. Now, the frameworks and the difficulties experienced by advocates under the zero tolerance policy are very much present here today. There are still various gaps in reporting and information sharing that makes it extremely challenging to locate the parent to get into communication with the parent, to then assess what the parent wishes. And this is especially critical when children are pre-verbal or of tender age, which tends to be the case with separated children, as those children were never intended to be unaccompanied. They came with their parent or legal guardian. 
if we don't consult with the parent, we do not know if the parent is wishing to remain in the United States and seek asylum or seeking to return. And it has happened where that lack of communication initially led to children wanting to return without knowing that their parents are trying to fight their cases for asylum. So as legal advocates, we're tasked with looking at parents, assessing availabilities. Most important, what is the child's expressed interest? What does the child want? What is in the child's best interest in coordination with other advocates and professionals? And after making that determination, then we facilitate, as I mentioned, reunification in the United States or in their home country if the parent was, again, swiftly deported. And so it's it's not a guarantee that when a child comes to the border or comes unaccompanied or is separated that they would stay in the United States. It's very much possible that they could be returned to their family in their home country. Absolutely. Once they enter into ORR custody, um, they're assessed to see what available reunification options are present. If there is no sponsor available, the option of long-term foster care or residential care is explored. But also a reality is voluntary departure and the child returning, one that is not pursued if there's um, protection needs being um, identified. So you're absolutely correct. By a child being placed into OR custody, that's not a guarantee that the child is ultimately going to stay here. Even when they're released to OR custody from OR custody and remain here in the United States, they still have to continue with their deportation proceedings. So they will not have any sense of permanency until that is completed. Do you have any sense of how many of those family child cases are one? How many of those thousands of kids with their families seeking asylum get to stay? Do you know any kind of percentage of that or how many are sent are eventually denied that claim? Or maybe we don't have those numbers yet because of the backlog. Those numbers are rather challenging because there is changing in reporting under the previous administration. But I think one thing I can certainly speak to is that it demonstrates the incredible need for legal counsel because with legal representation, the probability of winning their asylum case increases exponentially. I mean, well above 95%. So it is critical that a child be provided the opportunity to counsel with an attorney to assess their available options. But I think it's also important to note the difference perhaps difference between unaccompanied minors and forcibly separated children. And unaccompanied minors, they may or may not have their family readily available to support in their preparation of their asylum case. Now with forcibly separated children, it becomes especially more critical because their child's and parent cases are invariably tied and the child may not have information because the parent shielded them and tried to protect them from from certain facts or from a certain awareness that they didn't want to impact um, impact their child. So it becomes really, really difficult to prepare an immigration case when a ch- uh, in the cases of forcibly separated children because sometimes parents are still in detention. So it's nearly impossible to co- communicate in a confidential way to obtain necessary facts for the preparation of certain applications for protection. Or if the parent and families in the home country, then it requires coordination across various countries and to obtain the evidence and testimony necessary for the child to present uh, an application that would make them eligible to receive asylum and remain in the United States. 
Well, Annie Lou, thank you so much for taking time to share with us about this important, even if difficult topic. Where can people go to connect or learn more about you and our kind? Thank you so much. Um, right now is especially critical time. If you would like more information about our efforts or way to support, please be sure to check out our website, supportkind.org. There we have not only volunteer opportunities, but also resources if you want to find out more about what is going on, recommendations that KIND continues to advocate for. We recently released a blueprint in um, recommendations that uh, the present administration can undertake to improve the protection needs of children. And support is critical, so we're truly appreciative of people taking the time and also Catalina of you taking the time to to raise awareness on this particular issue. There's a lot of confusion out there as to who is an unaccompanied minor, what sort of protection do they have, what kind of state they're on. So we're truly appreciative of, of all support. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration.